Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. How is life bubble adjacent in Edmonton? I'm so glad you said that because everyone is asking me, how's Edmonton? I'm like, well, it's great out my window because I'm in an Airbnb <laughs> and can't leave. Um, and they're like, how's the bubble? And I'm like, well, I'm going to be bubble adjacent. Um, but honestly, with those two caveats aside, it's not bad. I mean, I think I have crush the quarantine situation of getting an Airbnb with multiple rooms in a backyard. Some could say I've been preparing six months for this moment. Um, I understand I'm getting this very unique opportunity to be um, at the arena, so I can't complain too much about not being in the bubble. And uh, everyone here has just been so hospitable. Um, everyone is nice sending me recs. I've got a lot of offers to send me free stuff, which I haven't taken a lot up on because, look, I'm not really an influencer. I just try to pretend I am one. Um, and it's, it's been nice. Now, just to be clear, you haven't been visited by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police on horseback to make sure that you are, in fact, quarantining. I have not. I've been thinking about going on a run every day. I'm like, could I do it? Could I do it? And <laughs> I'm just so scared of coming home and seeing the Mounties at my door. Uh, no, or, I have not done it. Or worse yet, like some deadly do rate starts r riding in back of you on their horse and fires a net at you as you're running. Ah. To collect, collect you and then bring you back over the border. These scenarios are very real. So I'm No, glad yeah, I'm I'm staying being... inside till uh, the 15th. Yes. Good for good on you for being extra cautious. We need your coverage. Uh coming up on this edition of ESPN on Ice, we have a great show, man. We got to catch you up on all the playoff stuff. We're going to talk about the goalie carousel in the offseason and two great guests, Bruce Boudreaux, our old friend, talking about the bubble and talking about his future. And Thomas Drance, the athletic, our friend who uh, talks about not only his uh, Game of Chirps uh, gimmick that he's been doing throughout the bubble playoffs, but also about his time as a, a PR dude with the Panthers and how he thinks that uh, the PR game has been handled uh, within the bubble by these, uh, by these teams. Good conversation. All that and more on this edition of ESPN and Ice. Let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey. Featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior handshake line hater. Boo. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. I hate that take of yours. It's my least favorite of your takes. It's everybody's least favorite of my takes, but it's also correct. Uh, I, I took, it's not correct. I took, I took it on the chin twice this week. One, because Edmonton's mad at me. We'll talk about that later. And then two, because I reiterated a take that I've had for like the last decade, which is that the handshake line sucks. Uh, even even our, our good friend uh, and well-respected ESPN uh, um, legend, Keith Olbermann, <laughs> took a run at me for the handshake line take. I only said it because Leah Hextall uh, came out as a, uh, a handshake line hater, and I give her credit for it because now, probably because of me, her mentions are trash. Um, <laughs> again, like, l listen, you, you can flog me in a second, but I, I've never liked the handshake line. Uh, I don't like the idea of forcing a team that just had money taken out of their pockets by these, these uh, you know, SOBs, SOBs across the ice who have been trying to maim them and hit them in the head and, and, and just destroy them for seven games, having to then shake their hand and say, good game. I, I, I would like this. I, I know people are like, what about the kids? Kids don't care. Kids don't care that they don't, don't do handshake lines the regular season. They'll give me about the what about the kids nonsense. If you want sportsmanship, do it more like they do it in soccer, where you know you, you do it on kind of a, an informal, individual basis. You go up to a guy, you exchange your jerseys. You, you, do a, you do it more of a player-centric thing than, all right, everybody, go line up and tell Matthew Kachuk how proud you are to have played in this series with him. And congratulate him on his advancement come on it's nonsense it's not nonsense it's what makes the sport beautiful um it's they want to tear each other's hearts out and punch them and chirp the hell out of them and then when it's all over they can go and show respect and saying we play this game we battled hard but i respect you as a competitor and look you don't have to go tell matthew kachuk I respect you. You can just shake his hand and move on. But we get mm -hmm. some of the most beautiful moments from the handshake line. My favorite moment in this playoff so far, everyone was focusing on Robin Leonard and Thatcher Demko and what they were going to do, these two great goalies. But then watching Robin Leonard seek out Tyler Mott afterwards 
and have this moment where you could just tell this pure love and respect and knowing that Robin Leonard had come out about his mental health issues and was super candid about it. And this year, Tyler Mott also came out and said, I have depression and anxiety and this is something I live with. And the mutual admiration between the two of them was something that a lot of people took something from. And you would not have that moment if there was no handshake line. No, that's a really good point. And I am willing to make a caveat. Um, you can have a handshake line if only if Robin Lehner is involved. Because the other moment okay. from the playoffs was also <laughs> his handshake line with the Blackhawks and him going through Corey, and having these yeah. emotional moments with all these players. So that's my, I said that at the time when he did the Chicago one, that Robin Lehner is the exception to the rule. It was the only time I actually felt like the handshake line was – there was a compelling reason to have it, and I liked seeing it. So that's my about, caveat. The, the opt-out for everybody else except for Robin Lehner. What about Zdeno Chara? The moment that he had with Rod Brindamore? The moment Don't that care. he had when it could yeah. have been his last game? Don't care. Don't care. You know what you could do? You could, you could set up a chair for, for Zdeno Chara in the back. You could have people come and, and visit him like he's the Pope. Kiss the ring. You don't have to do it on the ice. Who cares? Speaking of on the ice. The speaking of on the ice. <laughs> the Golden Knights and the Dallas Stars. Uh, we're two games into this series. And here's the way I see it, Emily. If you took the Dallas effort from game one and you took the Vegas effort from game two and you smooshed them together to make a new game, it'd be the best game of the playoffs. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. they were in separate games and it's been a very uneven series so far in the West. Yeah, it has. You know, going into this series, I I felt like the Stars were the clear underdog. Um, mm-hmm. You know, everyone's kind of getting on the Islanders for bringing back trap hockey. They're not the stars are about to bring back tra- trap hockey. Like they're pretty boring. They're not, they're not getting production from Tyler Sagan. Alexander Radulov has come on again recently. They're not getting enough out of Jamie Ben. Um, but really, and they don't have the goaltending depth. Really, this is Vegas' series to lose. Um, Vegas came out with a bit of a dud looking very lethargic in that game one. And I just knew going into game two, like knowing these Vegas Golden Knights, knowing that they firmly believe they deserve the Stanley Cup final and they have that arrogance, they were going to destroy them in game two, and God did they. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. I, I do think the Stars outkicked their coverage offensively a bit in these playoffs and, and maybe were a little bit more exciting than people anticipated, but I think that has a lot to do with their opponents. Like, they played mm. a Calgary team that was loosey-goosey defensively. They played a, a Colorado mm-hmm. team that was just basically like an AHL team by the time they got to the end of the, the, the series because of all the injuries that they had. Um, and then, you know, they're really good as a counterpunching team, uh, creating offense from their defense. And we saw that, I think, a, a little bit insofar as the previous series. Problem being now is that the Vegas Golden Knights are just as good defensively in some ways. And and I think that their goaltending is, is a, a well above uh, what the uh, uh, Stars have faced in these playoffs so far. So um, I am not surprised to see the totals for these games creeping under what we saw in previous rounds for Dallas. Uh, Vegas has always played against a, a little bit uh, closer to the uh, under, the under, I think, in these playoffs. And I imagine it's going to continue to be a tightly played series. But I'll tell you, man, like, um, and, and just to kind of like transition to the other series, interesting trend in both conferences. You had the Golden Knights coming off that Vancouver series where they – you know, we're shut down by Thatcher Demko for three games, but we're putting up like 48 shots. Like they were getting their chances. And and then they play this Dallas team, which is by far the best defensive team they've played. And in game mm-hmm. one, they looked just lost. Like, what is happening? Why can't we make our magic? And then they figured that out in game two. The Lightning play the Islanders, okay, in game mm. one. They drop eight goals on them. And there are reasons why the Islanders didn't play well. I think that the internal clocks being all uh, uh, set askew by the travel and the Game 7 and the going from bubble to bubble. I, they downplayed it, but that's a huge factor. But I also think this. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens in Game 2 because of this. The Lightning have played the Islanders twice already in these playoffs. They played them in the first round again, they were, when they were called the Blue Jackets. They played them in the second round <laughs> when they were called the Bruins. And now they're playing the actual Islanders. And I think that once you are the Lightning and you've played two rounds where you have to do everything possible scratch clock kick headbutt everything to score a goal against two great defensive teams by the time you get to the islanders who have been you know shutting teams down left and right in this postseason you know what you need to do against that defensive front so i'm intrigued to see what happens in game two and in the rest of the series because it could be a situation where the lightning are a bit more prepared for this islander defensive front than we gave them credit 
Yeah. You know, I loved the Lightning's response after game one, which was a blowout. And most teams would be like, yeah, we feel good. We look great. And they're all like, we had to win this game. It was a travel day for us. Like, we're not this good, but like, yeah, like we took advantage. Um, one of the things I would say about the Lightning, though, is out of the four remaining teams, um, Vegas is the only one I kind of feel iffy saying this about, but I'll group them in. The Lightning have stuck to their game the most, and they haven't been um, opponent dependent of the way they play. Um, they've been able to play Lightning hockey. They've been able to do it all without Steven Stamkos and look really strong without Steven Stamkos. Um, and that's why I believe they deserve to be in the Stanley Cup. So I, I think that, yes, they will make a necessary adjustments. But like you said, they've been preparing for this Islanders team throughout this entire tournament. The Islanders, meanwhile, I still can't count them out. They've played more games than any other team in this tournament because they're the only ones that came from the qualifying round. Mind you, the Lightning have played the least amount of games because they got their business done and closed out teams early. Um, I think there's some fight in them. And it's always, I have a big story coming out on Friday. It's always us against the world. No one believes (laughs) in us. And yet they still somehow always find a way. They do. They do. All right. Let's talk to our good friend Bruce Boudreau about hockey in the bubble and his observations on these playoffs. Joining us down the line, one of our favorite people, friend of the show, one of the winningest coaches uh, in NHL history and, and uh, just generally a great dude. Uh, Bruce Boudreau joins us now of uh, now NHL Network uh, doing uh, great analysis for them. And uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you, Bruce, because I was really curious about this is, when you look at this bubble situation and what these teams are going through and what these coaches are going through, what's been running through your mind as far as if you had to be put in this situation, how you would have handled keeping these guys ready, keeping them, them mentally fresh? What kind of challenge do you think it's been for these coaches to do this kind of thing? Well, I think the challenge has been incredible. I mean, I have no idea how I would have done it because I don't think anybody – knew how they were going to do it until they got there because it, no one had ever experienced anything like this. Um, you know, it's, it, I don't know if the players continually want you to have things planned out for them, um, uh, but when you've been in the, the bubble for, what, 50, 55 days now, uh, you know, I mean, it's you want them to find things that are something to do rather than lay in the bed and watch TV uh but it's uh you can only have so many meetings the games are every second day you can only go to the rink and practice so much so i think it would be a real challenge but i think you have to be there to really understand the challenge and then do what you do like you can't plan it out i don't think uh um you might have planned a few uh dinners and you might plan a few uh not excursions but events for the players to do but overall for that length of time I think you have to be there and do it as it comes. As you've watched this tournament and you've been analyzing it for NHL Network, what's the trend you've seen of teams that go home or the teams that have made it far and are still standing left? Well, I mean, the trend is to me is uh, you play a bad game, then the next day you're really good. I expect the Islanders tonight to be a 3-2 to two hockey game for one team or the other. I don't know who it's going to win, but uh, uh, it's the same as Vegas losing one nothing. The next night they come back and they win three nothing, and then and the the trend is 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 the teams other than Tampa Bay have not been consistently good at any point in the in the tournament. Uh, uh, I know Dallas won a few games in a row, but I mean they've also lost five nothing and and looked really bad on certain occasions. Uh, but um, it's, uh, uh, I th- and I, I really believe that that comes with being in the bubble and not being in the routine. And maybe some games, you're just, it's, you're trying to be, stay in your routine in that, but your routine is different than it used to be. And like some teams, uh, like when they play good and then they play bad, they're just, I think they they just are not into it because they're not where they should be. And what I mean by that is they're not at home and, and doing the, the things that they normally do. And then sometimes they just don't feel as into it as they would normally. And we've seen it uh, so many times where, ah, you know what, this team doesn't look like they're they're playing like uh, as good as they can. And then the next day they come in and they're blockbusters. I'll use uh, 
Montreal, for an example, I know it was a long time ago now, but when they beat Philly 5 nothing that one game, uh, and they looked like they could beat anybody in the, in the world, and then the next night they were nowhere near the same team. Carolina was that. It was like that in the in the play series, and they, I thought they they had a chance of winning the cup the way they were playing. And then Boston took them out pretty easy, and then Tampa took Boston out pretty easy. So uh, I think being in the bubble sure is is affecting the way they uh, uh, prepare a little bit every day. And and sometimes, and I have no idea, but I'm just guessing that sometimes players miss their families so much than they and they have to correct a lot of things at home like the kids are all over the place what do you want me to do and then their mind isn't as uh, on it as they it would be normally and they feel helpless because they can't be at home helping their wives that I, I think you know uh, that has to affect them in some some form one or one way or another I mean, reading between the lines it sounds like you might put some uh put some credence to the idea that we saw early in the playoffs of some of these series being pretty quick, so then all of a sudden you're down, you know, three one in a in a seven game series, or you know, two one or two nothing in a five game series, and some of these teams maybe hit the hit the eject button. You know, they just wanted to get home and see their kids. You think there's some some credence to that? Well, I think in the Arizona series, uh, you could definitely make a make a point. You know, I mean, that could could very well have been because yeah. I know Arizona is an awful lot better team than losing seven to one, seven to one. I don't care how good the Nathan McKinnon line was in that series. It's uh, uh, Arizona's too good to be losing like that. So sometimes you get behind the eight ball and you go, there's no chance we're going to win. And I want to win, and I'm going to put an effort out there, but let's go home. (laughs) (laughs) Bruce, I know there's a lot of speculation that you might become an assistant coach next year with the Maple Leafs. I'm not going to get into that because I know better, and I know you're not going to comment. What I do want to know is I understand you believe that your dad might have cursed the Toronto Maple Leafs, and that's the reason they haven't won a cup. <laughs> you know, that's getting more play than I thought it would. But I, I just remember my dad when um, uh, this must have been 1983 now, and uh, uh, when the Leafs, um, sent me down again, and he says, that's it. They're never going to win a cup until you're back here full time. And I've always remembered that because he never got angry, and he was really angry, not at me, but talking to me, being angry. And it just hit me, and every time I, I see the Leafs, uh, you know, bowing out of the playoffs the next year, I'm going to myself, uh-oh, there's my dad talking to them again, not letting them win. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, and then I went out and said it on air, I think, a couple of days ago, and it's uh, gathered some steam. But it, my dad loved the Leafs. Don't get me wrong. He just loved me more. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just love the fact that you, you put out in the in the world on Toronto radio that your dad cursed the Leafs, and that's why they don't win. And you're like, oh, I can't believe they got traction. Like, come on, it's Toronto, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, good point. They Maybe think, that's they why think my you... mom hasn't left the house in the last week. Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> they, they think your dad's the black cat for the Chicago Cubs. You know, they, they just think oh, like uh, that's yeah. the <laughs> um, like like Emily said. I mean, not not tipping your hand or anything here, but but just curious. I mean, there there are so many um, prominent coaches right now that are kind of in the on the carousel with a few openings and maybe more to come. We don't know, obviously, what's going to come out of the bubble, but. Um, what what are you looking for for your next opportunity? Well, I mean, there's two things. One, I've come to really love the NHL, and uh, I mean, I was I was happy for 30 years not being, you know, I mean, being up and down and that. But once you get there and you're you're you, you get a pretty good reputation in that, then I, I love the the people that we deal with uh, every, on a day to day basis and. And all about it, the hockey, um, the, the going home and knowing every player that when you're watching the other teams on TV and, and stuff. So I love that that aspect of it. So I don't want to end my note of, of being uh, an NHL coach uh, by being let go in February. I want to, I'm pretty driven to do it again um, and get that opportunity that, uh, happens mostly every spring of winning the cup. I mean, I dream about it on a constant basis. And um, 
So, I mean, that being said, I, I want to get back to it. Well, you know, I mean, I would love to be a head coach first. I mean, that's what I've been, you know, every year except one um, is a head coach. But I want to, I want to coach in the NHL. And if it, uh, I think the one thing about head coaches, they know what they want from assistant coaches. So, I mean, I think I could uh, definitely fit the bill if, uh, if that's, you know, whether I'm asked or whether I choose to go there. Uh, uh, it's, is another thing, and but I want to be back in in the game. I don't think I could sit at home on the couch and not be involved in hockey when you've been involved since you've been five years old in in the game. So that's that's my goal. As you've started to have conversations with folks around the league that are in hiring positions, and maybe this dates a few years back, what are some trends you've noticed of what people are looking for in a head coach in the NHL right now? Um, well, I think right now, uh, the way the league is going, I, I really believe it's a win now league. So they're looking at experienced coaches for the most part. Very few young guys, uh, are, are coming in, or if they you have a young guy, they're usually, uh, getting an older assistant coach as a, almost as a mentor. And I'm not saying that based on the, what, about the Leaf situation, I'm looking at Jacques Martin, you know, going to the Rangers, and and uh, I talked to one GM, and he said uh, they're looking for experienced coaches because uh, the, the league doesn't want to take their time. They can they they can mentor somebody while they're there uh, as a head coach, but they they, they don't want um, the trend is I think uh, going for guys that have been there and done that and. Uh, that's why I think, you know, like, I mean, there's only one head coaching job out there right now, and you've got uh, uh, the, the talks of the, you know, of Laviolette and Babcock and, and Gerard Gallant and, and, and such, and, and because they're all experienced and have done that. I mean, there's great coaches in college, great coaches in, in the American League coming up, but uh, uh, those are the names that seem to be appearing everywhere uh, right now. So that's the trend, I think, that's that's going with it, and, um, you know, I mean, in my position, I, I hope that's the trend that continues. For sure. All right. I got one last one for you. Does that make side. sense? It makes total sense, sense, man. You're making okay. great sense. We all know you should be okay. a GM, Bruce. Come on. I mean, your coaching thing has been great, but you should be able to run the show at some point. <laughs> oh, don't you what think? I love that. Oh, Come on. Oh. It's, listen, it's been too long since Keenan did it in Florida. We've been waiting for the mm-hmm. next GM coach. There's no reason you can't be that, right? Save the org some money. What? I always uh, always thought I could do that, but uh, uh, I was good at it in Mississippi in the East Coast League. But that's about as close as I got. <laughs> See, this is this is why you and I get along because I always thought I could run a team too. <laughs> yeah, hey, you know what? I think I think if you look around, there's probably millions of people that think it's an easy job. <laughs> that's true. All right, so you got, you're coming up on NHL tonight, uh, Sunday and Monday on, on NHL Network. I wanted to ask you one last thing. People, you know, Emily and I both vote on these awards, um, and all we hear from, from, from fans is, you know what, you guys shouldn't vote on the awards. You should have the experts vote on the awards. Well, we got an award coming up today. It's the Jack Adams. You got Tortorella. Uh. You got Vigneault. You got uh, Bruce Cassidy. I'm asking an expert. Who who would you give the Jack Adams to this year of of those three? Or is there somebody off the board that you think deserved it more? You know what? I, the Jack Adams, I think, is the hardest thing to vote for because um, teams do exceptionally well uh, in uh, every year. Like, um, And I can make a, a point of all of it. Uh, Vino and Philly, uh, I think, did a great job. They moved from uh, where they were to first place in the in the Metro, and but I, I still think they had a good team, and they finally started to live up to their reputation because Av's a good coach. But so I don't think they overachieved. I think they got what they they deserved here. I think um, so. I wouldn't vote for him, even though I love him. But I, I, in this case, I wouldn't vote for him. I thought Tortorella did a great job with Columbus um, and uh, they had so many injuries to overcome and, and the East was, I think a real bear this year, uh, but he got the most out of his players, uh, the absolute most out of every player that got called up and everything else. Um, uh, 
but again, they wouldn't have made the playoffs if it was a regular year and they ended mm-hmm. the season at the right time. So I have a hard time um, see, seeing him. And Butch, as uh, you know, Boston's had a great team, but he was, I think, nominated last year too, mm-hmm. uh, or the year before one of those two. Yeah, and they've stayed consistent and consistent, and they won the President's Trophy. And I really believe that there's got to be something said for winning the regular season championship. And and this is all voted on before the playoffs, if I'm correct. And I think uh, uh, Butch, again, did the consistent great job. And I would I would have given it to him this year because you've got to give to me, you've got to give uh, some awards for guys uh, and teams that do exceptional. And they were the best team in the league. And obviously uh, the best uh, defensive team in the league, and and they were right up there with offense. They were up there with their their special teams. So I mean, uh, they were a consistently good good in every area. So I would have, uh, I think I would have given give the nod to Butch this year. But who knows? I've been wrong so many times. Uh, uh, any one of them could win it. I just that's who I would give my vote for this year. Good stuff. All right, one quick hitter before we let you go. Uh, sometimes the NHL hears that it's not a superstar league, and in this tournament, Crosby's gone, McKinnon's gone, McDavid's been gone for a while. If you're starting a team, what player from these four last teams would you build your team around? Who's the biggest star left? Oh, what a tough question. Um, to me, uh, uh you know, I'm looking for a younger guy that's going to be just a stud. But I mean, it, it's Braden Point would be the guy mm. to me that I would build a team around. He has exceeded everybody's expectations and keeps getting better. And no matter uh, uh, when you say, "Okay, we got to stop him," and that he doesn't seem to be stopped. His inner drive, and I don't know the man at all, but his inner drive seems. Uh, uh, so high that he won't let anything um, beat him. And he would probably be the guy I would start start with. Or if you looked at a defenseman, I, I mean, uh, I, I really, I, I coached Shea Theodore for a lot, uh, for a little while. And, and I just think he brings so much to that Vegas team. Um, so he might be another guy. Good stuff. Hey, Bruce, thank you so much for your time, man. Everybody check out our guy on uh, NHL Network. And uh, good luck, sir in all of your future endeavors, wherever they may lead, maybe to try. Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> thanks so much. We'll talk again. Our thanks to Bruce Boudreau, future Toronto Maple Leafs assistant coach, who's to say? I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I mean, like, like we'll talk about coaching stuff a little bit later, but there are other candidates. I think Bruce could still be a very effective head coach in this league, but, I mean, the idea of him sort of transitioning into that Jacques Martin uh, big name assistant role for one of these teams would be an interesting prospect. And obviously there's a little bit of a tie to Toronto as long as, you know, they can lift the curse, the Boudreaux family curse. Let me please. God, that's so good. Um, let's look at the goalie carousel for this uh, off season. It is crazy. Uh, as far as the goaltenders that could be available for, for in free agency and via trade, we'll start with the golden Knights. Um, Robin, so Robin Lehner, there is ob- there is obvious interest on the Knights' part to sign him to an extension. Um, we have information that there's been talks already uh, that makes life very uncomfortable for the Mark Andre Fleury fans in the world who know that their guy has a couple more years left in his contract, is the face of the franchise. But lo and behold, the goaltender they acquired at the trade deadline um, looks like the guy going forward. And again, like if you you know, it's kind of like follow the money, like follow the starts. Like who 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 became the starting goaltender when this when this action restarted? It wasn't Flurry, and one can kind of glean from that that if you are you are not handing the crease over to somebody that you are not looking to retain. Okay, it's just logic. What do you do with Flurry here, Emily? Assuming that Robin Lehner is going to be off the market and a Vegas goaltender going forward. I mean, you have to do something because the cap situation is untenable. Um, even if they get rid of all their UFAs this summer, which they probably will. It's Merrill, it's England, it's Nosek. Let's say they don't resign any of them. They still need to create cap space um, to deal with their RFAs like Chandler Stevenson, uh, who they want to keep, and then sign Leonard. So, 
I think Fleury leaves. Um, I, I really think that is the most likely outcome. A trade seems likely. Like a team like Ottawa, I feel like, might kind of lurk in and say, hey, we could use somebody to show some leadership and, and you know, hoard some starts for the next couple of years. And maybe if Vegas can sweeten the deal with some draft picks, so be it. Mm-hmm. Um. Jacob Markstrom, we talked to, uh, we're going to talk to Thomas Drance a little bit about, about Markstrom in a bit. Uh, I think he probably stays in Vancouver from the sounds of things. Uh, just a matter of what kind of deal they want to structure. And, and also, I mean, you, you have two competing things there. You have the uh, looming expansion draft, and you also have the money they need to spend on Pedersen and uh, Hughes after next Hughes. season. So we'll see what happens there. The, one of the one of the weirdest ones, and I feel so bad for this dude because he must be like at home watching these playoffs and being like, "Oh my god, how many unrestricted free agent goalies are still playing?" Uh, Braden Holtby, like, what is the, what is the market now for Braden Holtby coming off his worst season, I think, in many years for the Capitals? Still, is a guy with a pretty decent playoff resume. Uh, if you're a team that's looking to make the leap, I've long said that Carolina, I think, would be an interesting landing spot for Holtby. Uh, but uh, but what do you think about Braden? Do you think he's a, there's a market for him, or do you think he's destined to be sort of a 1A in these situations? I think there's a market to sign him to a veteran's minimum-ish, $1 to $2 million one year. And, you mm-hmm. know, it's sad how the mighty have fallen, but that's the situation he finds himself in. Now, all season long, I was told, the Capitals told him, look, we're not bringing you back, we're moving on from you next year. I do think the circumstances have changed a bit. Now we're in a situation where everyone knows you need two goalies, Mm-hmm. Ilya Samsonov goes and gets an off-season ATV injury. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe you bring him back cheap if he's willing to. I've heard that what Hopi wants the most is to start. I actually floated my little pet theory about Seattle to someone in the Seattle organization this week. Um, they were told me they are under strict orders. They can't comment on any, any, any players. That said, they liked my idea. Um, <laughs> one team that I think is not being mentioned enough, and if we're thinking about cultural fits of where Hopi might mesh in. What about San Jose? They need goaltending. They could use a veteran. They could probably convince him to come there on the cheap. And for Hopi, it's a, opposite, it's a position to start right away because you know the guys you're going against aren't exactly better than you. Yeah, and, and Dell is a UFA, I think, and, and obviously like... Yeah, he is. In, if they bring in a goalie, it has to be somebody who's making less than Martin Jones, which is going to be a tough tough fit. But they could probably find somebody in this market. And I, I'm, uh, San Jose is definitely one of those teams, along with, pro, with along with Calgary, along with Edmonton, along with Carolina. In theory, um, they're going to be looking to add goaltending. Um, there's also some teams looking to subtract it. Uh, the Rangers have too many, <laughs> but they also have a Henrik Lundqvist who is going to have to decide whether or not he wants to go someplace else to continue to apply his trade or. Retire a Ranger. What do you think he ends up doing? Yeah, when we had JD on the podcast a couple weeks ago, I was like, oh, maybe the door is open for him to return. And then you start talking to people and you're like, no, this is it. They're going Georgiev. <laughs> <laughs> They're going uh, the young kids just jerking. What? Okay, so it's either a buyout or he waves for a trade. I was thinking of what team would make sense. What about Colorado? Yeah. They've got a nice Swedish contingent there. They are ready to win right now. He has an opportunity to take the 1A spot, maybe you know, get your, earn yourself some more starts over the season, and play a deep playoff run. It makes sense yeah, to me. They've got the cap to, space, too. It makes sense to me, too. And there was like some theory of, like, imagine how different these playoffs could have been if they had made that deal uh, earlier this year um, in some way, shape, or form. A couple other goalies to think about. Uh, Corey Crawford. I mean, staying in Chicago. stay. Yeah. Okay. He, he's going to stay. Uh, the Athletic has reported that they've offered him a one-year, $3.5 million deal. Um, Grab that. You, when you see details like that come out, you're like, there's a reason someone wants those details to come out. <laughs> the Blackhawks front office clearly wants everyone to know that's the offer on the table. And if uh, he doesn't take it, he doesn't want to be there. Um, I, I think something like that, it's not going to be far off from that. That's what he's going to take. It's going to be like a one-year deal going forward until he figures out when he's ready to retire. Freddie Anderson with the Leafs. Matt Murray with the Penguins, no both of them on the block. In theory, it could be a dosy do switcheroo. I mean, why not just go one for one? Get Matt Murray back with Dubas, ship out Freddie Anderson. Could happen, right? Uh, who says no? The Maple Leafs say no. Yeah, probably. Uh, a couple and other they, interesting... uh, Murray's got to go, though, and the issue with Murray is that the market has dried up. Like That's why you saw Jake Allen get traded so early and for a yep. low price. Mm-hmm. Few other names to consider: Thomas Grice, who's having a pretty good postseason for the Islanders, outside of Game One against the Lightning. 
uh, a potential buyout for David Dubnik in Minnesota. Anton Kudobin's the UFA, I believe, for uh, um, Dallas, or is he, he got is. a year left? Yeah, okay. And then both- He's a UFA, and the issue there is that they want to keep him, but maybe he realizes he can get a sh- much more money on the open market. Yep, and then, you know, you have the Columbus goalies where they've got them under, under you know, they're going to keep both of them. They like their battery right there, but you can't necessarily keep both of them in a in a uh, expansion draft scenario, so maybe they look to move one of them. So lots of stuff swirling around the old goalie carousel. Let's talk a little bit more about it and about uh, all the nasty things said during bubble hockey with our good friend Thomas Drance. Now joining us on the line is senior writer for The Athletic Vancouver and also a TSN 1040 contributor, Thomas Drance. Now, Thomas, I am currently quarantining, so I haven't been able to be in the bubble yet, but you've been in Edmonton this entire time and doing God's work, really, documenting all of the chirps that we've heard on the ice. Can you explain to our listeners just how closely you can hear these chirps and what have been some of the most creative uh, teams and players that have stood out so far. Yeah, absolutely. So honestly, this came out pretty organically. We have an Edmonton beat writer here, Daniel Nugent Bowman, and Dan Robson, uh, one of the Athletics feature writers, was assigned to cover the bubble for the first week or to 10 days, really the qualifying round. So the very first day, I didn't have access. We only had two credentials for our outlet. So I didn't have access to that very first game, which was the Edmonton Oilers game versus the Chicago Blackhawks. And so I watched the first run of games on TV and noticed that sound-wise, it looked and felt pretty much like a normal hockey game. Uh, no fans, no sort of different kind of atmosphere, but no no audio difference for me anyway, watching on television that first day. And then I went and saw Winnipeg-Calgary, um, that that first evening, and I noticed immediately that the sound of the game was completely different. Hmm. When you think about the surface of the ice and the fact that it's round and has large glass walls, basically, the, the ice surface itself is basically a parabolic microphone, right? And so it's shooting sort of noise from the ice up up to where I can hear it at the top of the 200 level in the auxiliary press space. Uh, that they've set up in in, the, in Rogers Place, and and for whatever reason, it seems that the Eastern Bubble doesn't have the same feel. Like you can't hear things the hmm. same way you can out west in in the Toronto Bubble for, for whatever reason. But throughout this tournament, I've been able to make out a, a fair bit of the on ice chatter, and and it's weird because I can't make out what occurs between the whistles because the music gets turned on. Um, I can't really make out what's said during, for example, a goal announcement. Uh, and hmm. they have been slowly turning up, m- metering up the sort of EA uh, sound effects, like soundboard that, that <laughs> plays occasionally in game as the tournament's gone along. And you know, I like to flatter myself and, and pretend that they're doing their best to stymie uh, the game of turf, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'm sure that's not the case. I think they're probably just getting better at that sound element as they go. So. You know, I'm pretty limited in what I can hear, but I'm able to hear a fair bit of what's said during the run of play. And immediately it was just such an eye-opening experience for me, especially with that Flames sort of Jets game where Mike Seip- Mark Seipley got hurt and Paul Maurice was, you know, yelp- dropping F-bombs. <laughs> uh, you know, as, as Mark Seipley sort of ex- uh, escorted off the ice, right? You, you know, I see Matthew Kachuk go over and try and give him a stick tap, like, a, I'm sorry, bud. And, you know, Paul Maurice tells him, can I swear on this podcast, by the way? Or should I go ask? You could, you could, you could swear. We could, we could adjust accordingly. You can, you can bleep. Um, so, you know, he's like, get the f- away from him. So, you know, that was sort of this moment where I was like, okay, this is unbelievable. I, I've got to make sure that, that I'm sort of reflecting this. And, and it turns out the fans were incredibly interested in this. Like, it's been, a really high interest feature for me and, and, and a bit of a hit. So I, I've kept going back to the well and, and documenting this all. And, and Vegas really is the standout team, you know, to the yeah. point where I've got Golden Knights team, Golden Knights fans saying that, you know, I'm making stuff up, which is ridiculous. Like we all know how much you sacrifice in this business, right? Like I'm not, I'm not, I haven't spent 10 years, you know, putting my family through hell. <laughs> so that I can document and make up things about the Vegas Golden Knights like <laughs> fat shaming a Canucks forward. Like that's not that's not what I'm doing to people. Uh, but you... the 
So let me, let me ask you this about the Knights. Well, first of all, I think you're right about the bubbles because uh, I think Barry Trotz actually said it the other day where the, the, yeah. he was surprised how quiet the Edmonton Arena was in comparison to Toronto. But when mm-hmm. it comes to Vegas, there was a moment in game two that I think is sort of indicative of, of what that team is where they're coming off the ice. They're, they're up, you know, like 3 nothing. I think, at that point. Ryan Reeves is running his mouth like a mile a minute at everybody mm. on the ice for Dallas. And you can see Flurry is waiting, you know, for all of his, his the skaters to go back to the room. And like Reeves is going. And Flurry Flurry looks like he's at Deaf Comedy Jam. Like Flurry is losing <laughs> his mind at how funny Reeves is being. I got to imagine that like if you were going to give a con Smythe for, for, for yapping, it's probably Ryan Reeves at this point, right? It's definitely Ryan Reeves, and then and then it's also. But the, the thing about Vegas that I like is that it's not just Ryan Reeves being a cut up, right? It's not just the fact that in Game Seven against the Canucks, when Tyler Mott got uh, when Reeves hit Tyler Mott, right? Then Mott's down. You know that that was sort of the scene and the site of the very first Joe Obama joke that I overheard in the bubble, right? Like it's not just that <laughs> side of it. It's also that Vegas does sound effects. Like Nate Schmidt, when he's open, he does he does this battle cry like whoop, and, uh, and it's <laughs> incredible. There was there was this moment what where he crossed, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he crossed the blue line. He cro- Nate Schmidt crosses the blue line and puts a deke on. I think it was Tanner Pearson, Canucks forward Tanner Pearson, and from the Vegas bench, someone's like sweet. Like they're like making sound <laughs> effects as he's deking through Canucks, and and one of my absolute favorite moments was game one. Alex Tuck, who'd already scored in the game, zooms in on Thatcher Demko, and there's a player on the Vegas bench who makes a noise that's like he's playing with a toy airplane. He's like, boom! <laughs> and it became like my absolute favorite moment. Like, I, I've kept going back to that well and, and just thinking about Alex Tuck, who's, you know, for me, one of the breakout stars of this playoffs, partly because he's just, you know, maybe he's not Barzil or McDavid, but he's in that next tier down in terms of how fast he is. And the idea of him rooming in on, on Demko still sort of makes me chuckle. So, you know, they're funny. Uh, they are absolutely merciless, right? The calling Quinn Hughes the water boy. Like, it took me the whole game mm-hmm. to figure out what they were saying to Quinn Hughes. And then I realized, like, they're calling him they're calling him a water boy. They're saying you look like you should be the water boy as opposed to <laughs> out here doing the insane things you do regularly. You know, calling Pedersen a little squirt. Um, I mean, they are they are merciless, by far the most merciless of the teams in the bubble. Although I will, I do want to shout out Calgary. Calgary's sort of one A, and if they'd gone deeper into this playoffs, I think they would have sort of a similar dynamic to them at this point. It's just that you know, the longer you stick around in the game of chirps, the more you are spotlighted. Um, and Vegas has sort of reached that point where you know they're they're sort of at the very top of my list because they're giving me the best content. And, uh, and it's been a lot of fun. Well, Thomas, for some of our listeners who might not know, you by far have one of the most interesting career paths of anyone in media because you're one of us on the dark side. And then for a couple years, you were the director of communications for the Florida Panthers working in their front office for PR. And now you're back mm-hmm. on media. So I'm curious with your perspective. This is such a unique tournament and access has been limited. Yeah. There's no independent media in the bubble. How do you think these PR staffs are doing and, you know, promoting the game, promoting their teams? What would you have liked to see and, and maybe some creativity that some guys are exercising and some guys and gals aren't? Yeah, the, I mean, I, you can tell immediately sort of if you're following this playoffs and following the content that is being produced from some of the best hockey writers in the world that everyone's had to adjust, right? The human storytelling element is basically virtually impossible right now, in my opinion. And that's because you can't really, you can't really do personal stories or some of the other types of content over zoom. It's just not possible. Anything you're getting is not exclusive. And from the experience that I've had, particularly covering the Canucks a little bit more closely, since that's sort of my major beat and they ended up overperforming in this Western bubble, you know, there weren't a lot of one-on-ones, right? Any one-on-ones I got, I, I set up through the players themselves or, or through agents, um, relying on relationships as opposed to access granted by PR folks. And, you know, I do think that's 
a significant sea change and we've all had to adjust. Like for me, I'm transcribing the swears, right? Um, Wish I've, I've noticed is, you know, one of the great lurkers, one of the great national media lurkers on post game on post game zooms. Um, everyone's sort is of he lurking out. though? He's asking. I, He's I not lurking. Ask, I, He's I asking. Am asking. I am asking more than I am. Lurking, I'm a lurker. So. You are, but I, you are I'm a lurker. No, but I will, I will, but I will say I this mean, though. I, I, I definitely, uh, you know what it's like, dude? It's like, it's like when you go to like a convention or like Comic Con and you're mm-hmm. ducking into different, uh, uh, workshops and stuff. Like right. you may not be there to like participate, but you're sort of, you know, auditing the class, right? So like I do that, <laughs> I do that with like a lot of the Eastern Conference, uh, uh to press conferences right. for sure. <laughs> no, but you're, you're like the best at it. You're the best of the national media guys at coming in, and it's always a good question, but you know, because you're like last, you're there. So it's just an experience. Right. That's sort of what I mean by lurking. It's just like, and next up we'll have Greg Wyshynski. And I'm like, okay, another one. <laughs> He's got us <laughs> again. So, uh, you know, every, everyone's had to adjust. And one thing that's sort of come out, out of that, I think, is, for me anyway, it's, it's specifically that I now transcribe the swears, right? And, you know, I, I, I had some, I had a beer with Chris Johnson from Sportsnet last night. And he was saying, you know, I thought you were still running that to prove a point, right? Like, that was sort of what he <laughs> thought about Game of Thrones. I'm like, no, this has actually been a really successful product for me. Um, but I do also think that it speaks to a momentary dissolution in the personal relationship that media are able to have with players, right? Mm-hmm. And long term whether it's Game of Chirps, whether it's sort of the British soccerization of hockey media coverage, I do think that that's going to take us to a space where the game is covered a little bit differently, where media is maybe a little harsher, a little more critical of players, probably in ways that become uncomfortable. And, you know, my overall sort of takeaway there is I know that players and coaches love this new environment right now. I don't think it's a good one personally. And I think over the long term, you're going to get into a situation where, um, you know, I, I do think the coverage becomes a little bit more tabloidy, uh, certainly more negative, and, and certainly a lot less interesting, too, for readers. So, you know, that's kind of the decision that the NHL has made. I think there's a variety of solid sort of science behind it. You've got to applaud that they've accomplished the most important thing here, which is playing, like, the most indoor and the most germy of the professional sports safely in the midst of a pandemic. Like mm-hmm. that's obviously mission one, but in doing so, they've obviously decided not to partner with media. I think the way that certainly the NBA has MLS, the NFL, and uh, that's posed some issues for us. Uh, some sort of long-term questions are, will arise, especially as players and coaches get comfortable uh, to the idea of not being scrummed on a regular basis and not sort of having to deal with questions from reporters who's, you know, forgot to put in a stick of gum and their breath's not good. And, um, you know, it's a discombobulating experience for players no, but on you, a general level, I, right? I was going to ask the last question about Vancouver, but I want to pause on this because this is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of antagonistic British soccer relationship that you're kind of describing. I mean, yeah. like, that's... So I think it's a two-way street, right? Like, on, on the one hand... You know, a lack of access would would naturally make a press corps more antagonistic, right? That's just sort of the mm-hmm. natural order of things. Um, is there a thought that maybe, without the accountability of having to see these guys face to face, and who knows when we will? I mean, there's right. no telling what access is going to be next season. That maybe there's a certain segment that would be emboldened to maybe be a bit more antagonistic or just have more candor. Uh, than they would if they had to, you know, see these people face to face on an everyday basis. Yeah, I mean, I think you're definitely going to get there. I don't know that we're there yet, partly because I think everyone's sort of looking at this as a short term thing for now. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm not sure how much of what we used to see as normal player access is going to come back, even in a in a world with vaccines and uh, you know fans in the building. Like I, I don't know that we're going all the way back ever. Just because, again, feedback I've gotten from talking to guys around the league is this is good. <laughs> they, they like this. So, you know, I do think that that's going to come at, at cost. Like, I do think that there, that's going to fundamentally change how a lot of us do our jobs. Um, certainly a lot of the stuff that the Athletic has done over the years, like the, the player polls and, you know, 
what's your warm-up routine and, and some of that like survey type content that, that I think has been a, a really cool ad for fans. You know, there's just no way to do that without a significant volume of one-on-one conversations after practice and after morning skate and after games. So, you know, we'll sort of see where this goes. I'm, I'm hopeful that, that I'll be back in the locker room at some point. Uh, working the room is my favorite part of the job. And, and again, I think would have fundamentally altered some of the stories that I was able to tell. Certainly would have changed my focus uh, this mm-hmm. tournament. And I, and I know that's true for both of you as well. Uh, so I'm hopeful we get back to doing some of that human storytelling that, that I do think is essential to, to growing the game and, and, and selling the sport. But um, I'm pretty I'm pretty deeply skeptical at this point that we're ever going all the way back. And, you know, as a result, you're going to get more things like Game of Chirps. You're going to get more things focusing on, you know, that side of the game, some of the, the grimier side that ultimately I don't think the NHL will prefer, um, no matter how much the players in their day-to-day rhythms uh, prefer the setup as it is now. I think I'm a little more optimistic than you, but that's the conversation to have in person when I'm out of the queue. Uh, okay, last one. We can't let you leave uh, before asking a Canucks question. So yeah. I've got to know, you know, as an outsider watching these Canucks, Jacob Markstrom's contract situation is looming. He wants a long-term deal. You watch Thatcher Demko and you ask yourself, how can they commit to Markstrom long-term when they've got Demko here? And I know Jim Benning says he wants to bring back both, but what do you think is the most likely outcome here? How, how does this resolve? Well, I think re-signing Jacob Markstrom is a true priority for this club, and they're not going to do it with a blank check. They, they do need to make sure that you know the, the deal's relatively restrained considering their overall cap situation, and, and yes, considering the fact that they already have a really good young goaltender uh, you know, in the queue, and to some extent re-signing Markstrom comes with the opportunity cost of likely needing to deal Demko prior to the expansion draft. For me, anyway, I do sort of look at the expansion draft and think, your first goal as a team should be to not lose anything of value. Like you should be able to restock your books so that you're losing something that's not, you know, Alex Tuck, (laughs) frankly, or Shea Theodore or what have you. So, you know, the Canucks, if they re-sign Markstrom, will have to deal one of their goaltenders. Like you cannot lose a piece like Demko for nothing in in expansion, in my view. Uh, So, it's going to be a complicated one, but I do think that Markstrom's essential to this team. Like he is, you know, the capo to Tutti Cappy in that room in terms of the size of his personality, what he means for that group. Um, you know, he has been their MVP two straight seasons. And while Demko's not sort of an out of left field emergence for this Canucks team, like he's been the heir apparent and groomed to be such for five years now. Mm-hmm. I still don't think this organization is going to be too reactive to what he did over three games against the Golden Knights. Uh, Markstrom's still the guy, and I think they'll, they'll try to re-sign him, and then that'll kind of buy them time to, to figure out exactly what their goaltending tandem looks like. Uh, but their sort of view of it is that there's no rush. Like, it's, it's not an either-or proposition at this point, although if they re-sign Markstrom and a team comes hard with a with an offer they really like for Demko, I, I don't think that would be, you know, something they wouldn't seriously consider mm. because they want Demko in the fold, just that they believe that that's a decision that can wait another day, whether it's at the next season's trade deadline or the draft or whenever uh, prior to expansion. Good stuff. All right, Trance, you're a good good dude, and everybody <laughs> check out your stuff at The Athletic, and uh, we'll talk to you down the line, man. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, let's do some reader mail. Um, Eric Larson writes in, which Canadian team has the best chance to win the Stanley Cup next season? What do you think? Well, the trendy pick right now is the Vancouver Canucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I trendy I'd buy reason. it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, I, I buy it as long as... They got, a, they got a couple decisions to make on that blue line, but I mean the core of that. They've got mm-hmm. the DNA for. Uh, they've got the DNA of a championship team in a way that other Canadian teams don't. They've got two great centers. They've got a foundational franchise defenseman, and whether you go with Demko or Markstrom, I think they've got a, a championship caliber goaltender. So I think as long as you have the building blocks of life that are the the, the four things you need to win a cup, uh, then I would say Vancouver is is a cut above a team like uh, Toronto, for example. Um. Daniel Hertzberg with a good question. The Masterton Trophy is awarded to multiple, should be awarded to multiple players, not just one. Makes no sense to compare grief or injuries as to who had it worse than the other. 
Uh, this is true. So, so Emily and I both vote for the Masterton. It's a PHWA award. It's given to the person who has the most dedication and perseverance in hockey, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Bobby Ryan uh, won the award recently. Um, every team nominates somebody. And the thought is that instead of making this some sort of bizarre who has the saddest sob story lifetime movie award kind of thing, um, maybe just give a little trophy to all the guys instead. What do you think about that? Yeah, I do find there's something, it's not tone deaf, but it just feels a little uncomfortable saying, oh, well, how would you wait? Alcohol abuse versus concussions versus, um, you know, a guy who's gone through chemotherapy. And there's also another issue where it's like, okay, do we vote Oscar Lindblom? At the time, he hadn't really come back. This is about somebody who's come back. Um, it's a wonderful award, and I'm glad we have it. I do think there is something that could be done that makes it feel like we're not um, comparing apples and oranges, really. Yeah. And finally, uh, Travis writes in, what percentage as good is watching hockey on TV without fans in attendance? For me, it's almost no different, like 95% as good. You know, so there's two ways to answer this. From a hockey perspective, I think it's been watchable. I, I really do miss the moments of spontaneity uh, spontaneity from the crowd especially in tight games where it's like in the third period and you're trying to get energy from that crowd and it just becomes like overwhelming and you have those shots of everybody going berserk and waving their towels and stuff like i missed that in a pretty significant way in the playoffs from a gameplay perspective and for the most part they've been able to kind of recreate it and i think it looks great because the other way you can answer this is how does it look compared to other sports and the answer is like mm-hmm. incredible like i mean you know Due respect to the NBA, but like that's a gymnasium with a bunch of televisions. Uh, due respect to baseball, it's like even more tedious than baseball usually is. We, we were watching the U.S. Open last night um, and like just got sad because we've the U.S. Open is one of our favorite events to attend, and it's because of those moments where like it's a tight game between two two uh, players. It's like the fifth set, and like the the New York crowd is its own character in this drama. And then to mm-hmm. remove that just makes it, you know, you're just playing inside of a bubble. And so compared to other sports, I think hockey's been less affected, as, as, as I guess is the way I would answer that. I think the MVP of this tournament is the Tarps. The Tarps yeah. made a huge difference. You're not staring at empty seats. You're not fixated on the empty seats. Only one thing I want to say here, and it's just a bit of a tangent, but you mentioned the U.S. Open. One thing they've done great is after matches, they bring in family members to mm-hmm. do interviews and chats with players. Um, in the NBA, we've seen family members announce the starting lineups. And as usual, the NHL is a little bit late to the game, but they're getting there because for the first time in Game 2 of the Stars and Golden Knights series, all of a sudden family members started appearing on the Jumbotron, cheering on guys and offering messages of support. And it's a really nice touch, but I'm like, NHL, why weren't you doing this the entire time? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's talk for our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel Loves Hot Dogs. It's the segment each week where we take a look at the hockey media, its foibles, its mistakes, all that good stuff. Pierre Maguire, um, Arizona Coyotes GM candidate, was (laughs) recently on uh, uh, TSN 690 in Montreal to talk about a great many things. The hosts asked McGuire about analytics again, and he says he's not totally against it, says it's a piece of the puzzle, uh, and then goes on to say, to, to wonder why, how, how Edmonton, Buffalo, and Florida are doing, saying that no team has gone completely in with analytics and has won the cup. Well, first of all, no team has gone in completely with analytics. I mean, maybe the Coyotes would be the only example. And as we talked about in the show, the analytics community never really warmed up to Cheka as being their forebearer. But um, I, I, I'm, can we just stop with this? Like, the Washington Capitals hired Tim Barnes, who was, used to go blog with the name Vic Ferrari, was one of the first, like, pioneers of analytics on the Internet. He was their director of hockey analytics. There's a picture on my Twitter with him with the Stanley Cup. There have been other teams that use analytics mightily that have won cups, that are contending for cups. When Colorado wins in a, in a, in a couple of years, it will be because of them embracing analytics and filling out their roster accordingly. Um, the war is over, dude. 
it's just over. We could stop now. We could we could lay down arms and say that that having analytics and embracing analytics is a good thing. Just because the teams that crowed the loudest about doing it haven't been successful doesn't mean that they aren't successful and that teams have used them in, in an intelligent and smart way and have been better for it. Two teams I just want to mention. Pittsburgh Penguins, you think of them as like a, oh, old school hockey, grit, character, who can play with Sidney Crosby? Analytics team. Tampa Bay Lightning, a team that we oh, God, keep yeah. applauding for the incredible drafting that they've done. They found character guys, yes, also have a great analytics department. Yeah, I mean, all due respect to like the grit and and uh, and sandpaper, you know, stuff. But like, Barley Goodrow and Blake Coleman are on this team because of analytics. Okay, mm-hmm. that's, that's what. The and truth it, is it's not the because of analytics; it's a combination of analytics and the other stuff, and that's what all teams are doing these days. They are taking right. all information and using it nuanced and making decisions. Yeah, so you're right. We the the analytics can't tell you that Tyler Mott's a good player. That's very true, but uh, they tell you that everybody else is pretty good. Uh, now it's time for Puck Headlines. Dateline, Consmith Watch. Okay, let's go around the horn real quick. Four likeliest candidates to win MVP if their teams win the Cup. Obviously, let's get one out of the way. Braden Point, I think, is ahead of Headman right now on the Lightning. He's incredible and also has the, you're doing this without Steven Stamkos kind of narrative going mm-hmm. on. Uh, would you say Heiskanen for the, uh, or Heiskanen rather, for the Stars would be the guy? For sure, 100%. Okay. There, I don't even think there's anyone close. Maybe Kadobin. Uh, the Golden Knights, I'd say probably Laner at this point with the shutouts that are going on would be the, the choice. I would agree. The only dark horse there is Shea Theodore. Yep, for sure, without question. The defenseman kind of leading his team in scoring is a pretty big deal. Um, and then the Islanders, man, it, I mean, it's such mm-hmm. a like – it's such a, Like a, a, Olivia? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's Barzell personally. Like, I, I feel like every time he touches the puck, something's happening. Um, He's had some amazing games this playoffs where he hasn't scored. Yeah, I mean, you, if you could give it to anybody, it'd be Trotz, but I don't think that you can. So I would go Barzell. Process of elimination. Dateline Washington. Three names in the mix for the next head coach of the Washington Capitals. Two are kind of the same. Mike Babcock and Peter Laviolette, both veteran disciplinarians, old school hockey coach dudes, come in, lay down the law, let these guys partying in the bubble know what's up. And then Gerard Gallant is more of a player's coach, but like in a good way, not in like a Todd Rudin way. Um, If you were a a betting woman, where would you say the money would go on who the next coach of the Capitals is going to be? I want it to be Gerard Gallant. I don't think it's going to be. I think they want someone who's going to be tough on Ovi and Backstrom and is going to lay down the law. Um, I keep hearing Babcock is an actual legitimate candidate, and it's, mm-hmm. it's wild to me. Um, I think it's going to be LaViolette because I do th- – I don't know. I, honestly, it's Babcock or LaViolette. I've heard that LaViolette's asking for a lot of money, right. um, and that would be the only thing that keeps him away. Maybe Babcock says, I can do this for less. I've made enough in my career. Um, but man, like, I almost wonder if it's like Babcock gets hired. It's because Ovi and Backstrom are like, you know, what? we want that guy. We've seen what he can do. Give, give us Babcock. It's going to be interesting to see what the financial situation with Babcock is with the amount of money that's owed to him from the Leafs. But, uh, but I, I, I think he gets the gig and I, I am very intrigued to see whether there needs to be the, uh, commiserate sit down with Darren Drager on TSN to uh, talk about the abuse in his history and, you know, well, you know, I've learned from it. I am a different guy than I was uh, when I was coaching, uh, you know, Detroit and uh, Toronto. Like, he needs to have that moment of, like, mea culpa, I think. Uh, Dateline, Edmonton Bubble. You talked about virtual families. Any update on real families coming to the bubble? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> as it stands, you know, I, I think the context here everyone needs to understand is that players in the NHL agreed we're going to have families go to the bubble. And it was something that they're like, okay, we need government sign-off on. At the time of the agreement, everything was moving so fast. They didn't get government sign-off yet. They're like, let's get this tournament going. We'll show them a good track record, and the government will okay it. Well, the government hasn't okayed it. So mm. all families that are in Canadian citizens, Canadian citizens and currently in Canada can't come, which is pretty much most of them. Yeah. Um, now the NHLPA sources are saying, you know, we're kind of hopeful for the Stanley Cup final. That's when we think it's going to happen. But honestly, it's just it's kind of a disappointment because this is something um, that really should have been figured out. And, and so many people shouldn't be in limbo right now. Yeah. And another example of how, you know, 
the players are never doing this bubble again. They're just like it, it make, might, might make sense for next season to start next season in the bubble. They're never doing it again. Uh, finally, mm-hmm. Dateline Edmonton bubble part two. I had two different people tell me that there was a culture shock for Toronto teams when they came to the Edmonton bubble because the amenities were different and there was less of them. Okay. Now, this is me passing information along. This is not part of a calculated daily routine by Greg Wyshynski to slag on the city of Edmonton. Uh, you know, I think the teams that were staying at Hotel X in Toronto, which is very chic and very cool, come to Edmonton. It's a different place. Not as chic, not as cool. Maybe less, you know, the differences in the restaurants. Maybe differences in there not being the private theater to watch Tenet. I don't know. I'm just simply telling you what I've been told. And I had the entire city of Edmonton uh, throwing uh, raw meat, delicious Albertan beef at me uh, for the week because I I dared to pass along uh, reporting that didn't necessarily show their bubble in the best light. Greg, Greg, Greg. I know. But here's the thing. Like, everybody's safe. That's all that matters. And Edmonton's done a really Mm -hmm. good job with it. Toronto did a really good job with it. We've been able to hold these playoffs. You know, the whole, you know, finals are in Edmonton. I'm sure it's going to be fine. I'm just, I'm just, again, I, I know I've tapped into some weird, you know, I, listen, I'm from New Jersey. I understand not liking the other city because people always put them over. Okay. I understand Toronto was always put over by people and Edmonton is like, you you know, you're out in the country or whatever. I get that. I didn't mean to, it to be that. I'm just passing along the reporting to you, which is my, in my capacity as a reporter. I love Edmonton. I've been there once. I had a great time. It's fine. Do I want Connor McDavid playing in a better market? Yeah, of course, but come on. That's not the point. I have no problem with the city of Edmonton. All right. It's on the record, folks. Yeah, you can't say anything because you're there now. Like, you, you literally can't. You can't even. I, I could see it. I could see the, mount, the Mountie behind you on FaceTime right now where you're not allowed to speak candidly. About this. Well, I just don't know what Edmonton's like. I just haven't been able to see past my front door. So <laughs> I, I, have, I have nothing to speak on. <laughs> Spud CA uh, grocery delivery, 10 out of 10. Brilliant. All right. That's the show for this week. It was a jumbo-sized one. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Thanks to Bruce Boudreau. Do check out his work on NHL Network. Thanks to Thomas Trance. Do check out his work on The Athletic, and uh, do check out our Thanks, work Steve. on ESPN.com. It's good stuff. Uh, the uh, Islander article coming out later this week, um, and then also our daily uh, look at the, NA- at the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs that you can wa- uh, wa- uh, read every morning. We really appreciate you guys. Read, review, subscribe. Bye. Bye. This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.